the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be with you. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we are going to talk with John M. Pollard. He is the author of Chester A. Arthur. The Accidental President. Now, when's the last time you thought about President Arthur? Yeah, maybe fourth, fifth grade. I don't know. Anyway, we'll talk with uh, Mr. Pollard about that and what kind of president Chester A. Arthur, this accidental president, actually was. We're also going to talk with Pastor Victor Alvarez. Conquest 2019 took place earlier this month. He's going to bring a wrap up and give us a, a, a glimpse of what to expect next. That's uh, going to be in the five o'clock hour. And Michelle Malkin is on a book tour. She's planning on coming to Portland and she'll be here on um, October 1st, that's Tuesday of next week, and she'll be talking about her latest book, Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? And uh, uh, as part of that book tour, she um, told us a little bit about it in my conversation with her today, and then I'm going to talk with her on Monday about the book itself. Uh, but she'll join us later in the 5 o'clock hour as well. So that's uh, that's at least in part our lineup. I also owe you an apology. We have been um, charged with giving away Trey McLaughlin and the Sounds of Zamar tickets. And I forgot to do that on Tuesday. We announced it. We were planning on it. And then it was my fault. I forgot to do that. So today we're going to give away two tickets. I was planning on doubling up on Friday, but um, now I'm... I'm going to have to triple up on Friday. So we'll be giving away two pair of tickets on two separate occasions during this program to Trey McLaughlin and the Sounds of Zamar. You might be hearing their um, their spots on air to get a, a taste of their music, but they're really very gifted musicians. And that is going to be on Sunday, October 6th at the Newmark Theater, 7.30 p.m. So we'll be giving away those tickets uh, today and tomorrow on multiple occasions. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's news uh, headlines. A senior Trump administration official yesterday uh, said that the administration was going to release a document showing the intelligence community inspector general found the whistleblower who leveled the explosive accusation against the president that has launched a an impeachment inquiry among the Democrats concerning his talks with Ukraine had political bias in favor of a rival candidate of the president. End quote. Well, the official did not identify the name of the rival candidate, but I don't think it would require much imagination. Well, that was yesterday. Well, separately, a senior administration official said the White House has been working as quickly as it can to release the uh, whistleblower complaint involving the president's conversations with the leader of Ukraine as long as it's legally possible. Well, the news came just hours after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi initiated a formal impeachment inquiry by alleging that the administration was hiding the complaint. Other top Democrats 
Democrats had previously said such an inquiry was already underway. So you can pick which version you'd, you'd like. The senior administration official, again on Wednesday, uh, said that the White House said nothing to hide, that there had been no wrongdoing, and that the White House's general position had been that it will make everything possible available to Congress or the public regarding the president's conversation with Ukrainian President Zelensky and the complaint to the intelligence community's inspector general. Well, a source familiar with the matter said uh, this week that the whistleblower had no firsthand knowledge of the president's July call. That has since been confirmed. Uh, The president vowed uh, earlier in the week to release a complete transcript of the call by Wednesday, which he has now done. More on that later. One of the biggest questions is whether House Democrats' formal impeachment inquiry of President Trump will backfire. This is a question put by the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Now, one of the most puzzling aspects of all of this is the role that his personal attorney is playing in this a call with a world leader and the appropriateness of that. But Democrats have suggested the president in his call with Zelensky tried to convince the Ukraine government into investigating potential 2020 presidential election opponent Joe Biden, his son Hunter and the Biden family business dealings. The president, Democrats have suggested, had $400 million in aid to Ukraine frozen to pressure officials into pursuing the Biden investigation. The Trump administration says the decision to freeze funding came more than a week before his call with Zelensky and that it was based on concerns about broader Ukraine corruption. The contents of the call, as well as the whistleblower complaint, could throw cold water on the explosive suggestion, or it could confirm. Plus, Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani, who has long publicly called for Ukraine to investigate Biden's dealings in Ukraine, posted a series of messages on Twitter suggesting Democrats have a bigger problem on their hands with the corruption involving high-level members of the Obama cabinet and multi-million and billion-dollar pay-for-play. Slimy Joe is not alone, Giuliani tweeted. Well, meanwhile, Trump is set to meet with Zelensky and did earlier today on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly in New York. The visit was previously scheduled unrelated to the whistleblower allegation, although the two leaders uh, faced questions about the matter for reporters and Zelensky spoke for himself on what he thought that conversation was about. A Republican congressman introduced a resolution on Tuesday calling for the ouster of House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jared Nadler, the Democrat from New York, from his panel post for pursuing impeachment proceeding against the president. The proceedings were formally backed late Tuesday by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Lance Gooden, a Republican out of Texas, said in a release that Nadler had acted against the will of the House of Representatives, which never gave his committee explicit authorization to begin impeachment proceedings. The body voted 332 to 95 in July to table an impeachment resolution from Representative Al Green, Democrat from Texas. That was then. This is now. Are these new grounds that uh, the majority will vote in favor if a vote is taken. Again, story is developing. The United Auto Workers strike against General Motors is entering its, um, actually concluded its 11th day. And while there are various issues being discussed, there's one point the two sides argue about the most. Temporary workers have been the top request among union uh, members, according to the Detroit Free Press. Uh, Temp workers are union members doing the same job as permanent employees, but get half the pay and far fewer benefits. The union wants those workers to get a path to being permanent as uh, and as temps. Uh, get pay and benefits that more closely match their permanent counterparts. Democratic presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders on Tuesday rolled out his plan to levy an extreme wealth tax on millionaires and billionaires, which he plans to enforce through the creation of a national wealth registry. 
National Review reports, adding that Sanders' annual tax on the top 0.1 percent would apply to Americans with a net worth of over $32 million or about 180,000 households and would raise approximately $4.35 trillion over the next decade. The Sanders campaign estimates under the plan, the IRS will be required to audit 30 percent of the top one percent's wealth tax returns and 100 percent of billionaires. The senators further groused on Twitter. Billionaires should not exist and socialism should. One might wonder. Well, Iran has um, spent more than 16 billion dollars during the past several years to fund militant terrorists across the Middle East. Cash that was uh, repatriated to the Islamic Republic under the terms of a landmark nuclear deal, according to new disclosures from the Trump administration. As Iran's economy teeters on the brink of collapse under the tough sanctions imposed by the Trump administration, the Islamic Republic's authoritarian leadership has spent its limited cash reserves to bolster terror groups such as Hezbollah and Hamas, as well as militant terrorists in Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. The flow of the deadly narcotic fentanyl from China to the U.S. has surged despite President Trump's trade war with the communist country and President Xi Jinping's promise to crack down on the illicit trade. Customs and Border Protection agents have seized nearly 2,400 pounds of fentanyl this year through the 31st of August, enough to kill roughly 475 million Americans. That represents a nearly 32 percent increase from the same period last year. Excuse me. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Time about 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. As promised, we want to give away our first pair of tickets to Trey McLaughlin and The Sounds of Zamar on Sunday, October 6th. They're going to be performing at the Newmark Theater, 7.30 p.m. They are known for their incredible harmonies and intricate parts. You will enjoy Trey McLaughlin and The Sounds of Zamar. We'd love to give away a pair of tickets. Again, this is for a performance on, um, let's see, October, Sunday, October 6th, 7.30 p.m. at the Newmark Theater. Caller number 3. And the number to call, 800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. Again, a pair of tickets, Trey McLaughlin and the Sounds of Zamar on Sunday, October 6th. Great gospel music, Newmark Theater, 7.30 p.m. We'll be giving away another pair of tickets before this show draws to a close. No, I promise we really will. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan hinted at an interest in acquiring nuclear weapons, telling the United Nations that it is unjust for the weapons to be possessed only by major powers. It bothers us, like anyone else, that the weapons of mass destruction are used as leverage in every crisis instead of their total elimination, Erdogan said during an annual meeting at the U.N. General Assembly in New York. The position of nuclear power should either be forbidden for all or permissible for everyone. And Michigan City clerk is charged with altering ballots in 2018 in the midterms. And Massachusetts is banning the sale of all vaping products for four months in the toughest state crackdown to date. Well, Utah Republican Representative Char- Chris Stewart rather announced uh, the uh, on the Ingram angle and on social media late Wednesday that the explosive whistleblower complaint concerning the president's July call with Ukrainian leaders, uh, the Ukrainian leader, has been declassified. And Stewart said that it doesn't contain the condemning information 
uh, that has been alluded to up to that point. The entirety of it is focused on this one thing, and that's the transcript of one phone call, he said. He added that he was initially anxious before viewing the complaint, but concluded this is going to go nowhere. There are just no surprises there, end quote. Well, he was among bipartisan select group of Intelligence Committee lawmakers in the House and Senate who gained access to the whistleblower complaint in a classified setting on Wednesday. House Democrats emerged from the uh, secure room um, Uh, would not divulge details of the document, but described it as disturbing and urgent. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff said it exposed serious wrongdoing. The complaint was not immediately available to the public, but is expected to be released uh, and was. The White House on Wednesday released a declassified transcript of the call that took place with the Ukrainian president as well. Well, a defiant um, president said during a press conference in New York that he wants full transparency, not only over the so-called whistleblower allegations leveled against him, but also from Joe Biden and his son Hunter on the millions of dollars that they had uh, been quickly and easily taken out of Ukraine and China. Trump also demanded transparency from Democrats who went to Ukraine and attempted to force the new president to do things that they wanted under the form of political threat. In quote, president's comments signaled that the White House would seek to turn the tables Uh, against Democrats who have initiated a formal impeachment inquiry. Biden, Trump's potential challenger in the 2020 presidential election, said the allegations against the president are impeachable, but his job is to beat him in the election. Military commanders are warning service members about the potential for mass shootings at screenings of the upcoming film Joker. According to media reports, the Army issued a September 18th memo in response to social media posts from so-called incels, spelled I-N-C-E-L-S, that were uncovered by the FBI, the website said. Incels are part of a subculture that identifies as involuntarily celibate, meaning they are unable to find romantic partners, even though they desire one. The memo said incels idealize the Joker's character, the violent clown from the Batman series, admiring his deception as a man who must pretend to be happy, but eventually fights back against bullies. It's hard to know whether or not to take this seriously, but seems to be a serious warning. Well, the Trump administration signed an asylum agreement with the Honduran government on Wednesday, marking the latest in a string of asylum deals with Latin American countries aimed at controlling the immigration crisis. The Department of Homeland Security announced it reached a deal with Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez, allowing the U.S. to send some asylum seekers from third countries back to his country. And the Senate again voted on Wednesday to end President Trump's emergency declaration on the U.S.-Mexico border wall, paving the way for a veto showdown with the White House. The Hill reports senators voted 54 to 41 on a resolution to end the declaration, which the president used to shift billions of dollars from the military toward wall construction. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer claimed the vote yesterday is the surest and likely the only way to restore funding the president has stolen from our troops and military projects across the country. Of course, it's been done over over many, many years, all the time. But he didn't care to mention the jobs, money, and even lives that have been stolen from the American people, said uh, his critic. Well, a new national survey shows Elizabeth Warren now sitting atop the 2020 Democratic field, further cementing her ascendancy to the party's presidential primary after a pair of polls reported her leading in the first two primary states, according to Politico. 27% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents polled by Quinnipiac University said they favor Warren, according to a survey released Wednesday morning. 25% say they prefer former Vice President Joe Biden. Representative Dan Crenshaw speculates this impeachment inquiry seems worse for Biden than it is for Trump. Now the Hunter Biden Ukraine issue is on everyone's radar. And we know that Democrats overstepped with their quid pro quo accusation. Have to wonder whether they did this to help Warren 
slash Sanders, end quote. Well, in an effort to be woke and kowtow to the gender-confused masses, Mattel is coming out with a new line of Barbie-like dolls called Creatable World that are gender-neutral and have a variety of interchangeable hairstyles and clothing choices to switch up the doll's look. I don't know if it also has interchangeable parts, but I'll keep watching. The marriage vow that usually involves a variation of for richer or poorer may no longer apply. Women may now want to add as long as you make as much money as me. It seems many men aren't getting up to the income level that women prefer in potential marriage partners, according to the New York Post. That has left successful ladies single and disgruntled, according to Cornell University, who conducted a study on the subject. Well, on this day, September 26th, and 1890, rather 1789, Thomas Jefferson is confirmed by the Senate to be the first U.S. Secretary of State, John Jay, the first Chief Justice, Edmund Randolph, the first Attorney General. And on this day in 1892, John Philip Sousa and his newly formed band perform publicly for the first time at the Stillman Music Hall in Plainfield, New Jersey. On this day in history, 1960, the first ever debate between presidential nominees takes place as Democrat John F. Kennedy and Republican Richard M. Nixon face off before a national TV audience from Chicago. On this day in 1986, William Rehnquist is sworn in as the 16th Chief Justice of the United States, while Antonin Scalia joins the Supreme Court as its 103rd member. And on this day in 1964, Gilligan's Island premieres on CBS. I've probably seen every single story, Gilligan's Island, and still can't figure out why on earth they couldn't get off the island, but that's a whole other uh, matter. Well, acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, intense testimony today on Capitol Hill, defended his handling of the explosive whistleblower complaint, alleging President Trump pressured the Ukrainian president to investigate the Biden family while calling the matter unprecedented. But after maintaining his composure for most of the morning, his frustration showed through at the end. I mean, it was hours and hours when Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff uh, rep- repeatedly pressed him to agree that the matter should be investigated. McGuire stressed that the committee now has all of the relevant information, including the whistleblower complaint itself that was released publicly on Thursday morning and said it's up to them to decide how to proceed. The horse has left the barn, McGuire said. You have all the information. You have the whistleblower complaint. You have the letter from the ICIG. You have the Office of Legal Counsel opinion. You have the transcript from the president. McGuire also stressed that the complaint was essentially hearsay and not corroborated by other folks. This is secondhand information. I'm not criticizing the whistleblower, McGuire said. I am in no position to tell the committee to do an investigation or not to do an investigation. Well, Schiff vowed at the end, we are going to find out the backstory, including whether U.S. aid was tied in any way to Trump investigation request, which the president denies. Well, the combat the conclusion of the session reflected the high tensions and enormous stakes surrounding McGuire's appearance. The rare uh, open hearing of the Intelligence Committee commanded Washington's political attention, given the implications for the newly launched impeachment inquiry against the president related to the whistleblower complaint. Well, shortly after the hearing ended, the president fired back on Twitter saying Adam Schiff has zero credibility, another fantasy fantasy to hurt the Republican Party, end quote. And he told reporters that the process is a disgrace, defended his Ukraine call as absolutely perfect and accused Democrats of bringing any legislative process to a standstill saying they've frozen the Democrats. Well, the White House on Wednesday released the transcript, as mentioned, and uh, uh, according to those who saw it at the time, there was no mention of U.S. aid at the time 
uh, of the phone call, but the aid had been suspended uh, the week before. And Ukraine's president, during a meeting in New York with uh, President Trump, told reporters on Wednesday that he was not pressured to investigate the Biden family during their two now controversial phone call over the summer. Nobody pushed me, Zelensky said. The comments come after the White House released the transcript, as we've been saying, reflecting that call. It showed Trump sought a probe into Biden family dealings in the country, though it did not show Trump explicitly linking the request to U.S. aid, as some have suggested. That story is developing. It will continue probably ad nauseum, but we'll follow it as closely as we can. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with John M. Pollard. He is the author of Chester A. Arthur, The Accidental President. What do you know about President Arthur? Well, we'll find out what we need to know in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Well, a rich New Yorker who never before held an elected position in his life was thrust into the highest office in America, President of the United States. Well, because of his background in Machine politics, the country groaned when he became president, expecting him to fail. Well, instead, he surprised them all by reforming deep-set corruption in the swamp. Well, in Chester A. Arthur, the accidental president, uh, my next guest, John A., or rather, John M. Pafford, uh, paints the portrait of how the unlikeliest man to become president unexpectedly rose to the occasion and led America in its first step to becoming a world power. Well, Dr. Pafford is a retired professor of history and philosophy at Northwood University in Midland, Michigan, and the author of Cleveland, The Forgotten Conservative, as well as biographies of Russell Clerk and John Jay. He joins us today to talk about the president you may not have given much thought to in recent days, Chester A. Arthur, The Accidental President. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Pafford. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Well, it's such a fascinating thing to look back at someone who is uh, in the 21st century considered relatively obscure and consider the contribution that he made. What urged you to uh, select Chester A. Arthur, who was an accidental president, we'll talk about that in a few moments, uh, to write a a biography about? It was uh, really the thrill of discovery for me. I was very familiar with our presidents in general, Mm -hmm. and of course with the better known ones in particular. Uh, We've had a number of presidents who become famous because of what they achieved in office or because they were president during particularly crucial times in our history, such as major wars. And the lesser-known presidents did intrigue me because I was wondering initially as to whether there was anything there that I've been missing that people should really know about. And I won't get into some negative names, but there are some of the presidents about whom I don't really think there's that much as that admirable in some cases and other cases that's not that fascinating. But about Chester Arthur, yes, there was a great deal of interest. He had never held any elective office. He had started off well in life, entering college, Union College in upstate New York, at the age of 15, graduated in three years, Phi Beta Kappa, did some school teaching, then got into private study for the law. At that time, it wasn't required, if you wanted to be a lawyer, that you had to go to law school. You could go to law school, they did exist, but you could also study privately and pass the bar exam. He did that in New York City, uh, became well-known for taking what was referred to as the Lizzie Jennings case 
1854. This is a black woman teacher, Lizzie Jennings, who was kicked off a streetcar in New York because of her race. It was reserved for whites only. He took the case and he won it for Lizzie Jennings. She was awarded damages. And a bit later that same year, the city of New York removed all racial restrictions from the streetcars. So slowly things were starting to change. But then he became a typical machine politician. He did well financially. I did very well financially. Uh, He did hold the position of collector for the Port of New York, made a lot of money doing that. He's part of a machine in New York. He's not personally corrupt in the sense that he's not dipping his hand into the cookie jar and pocketing money for himself. But those who worked under him, there are about a thousand people who worked under him in the Port of New York, those people all required to pay dues into the Republican Party of New York. So he's become a typical machine politician as we move towards the year we're going to be talking about primarily, 1880. What made him attractive as a vice presidential running mate? New York State. He was a powerful, he's an upper-level machine politician. He was powerful in New York. He's part of the Roscoe Conkling machine. So he's very, he's an upper-level lieutenant of Roscoe Conkling. The other key individuals who might have been chosen ahead of him, some office holders in New York, really weren't interested in the vice presidency. But there are only a couple ahead of him. He really did have a high ranking in New York. So he was put on the ticket with James Garfield to deliver the votes of New York. Garfield was representing the reform element of the Republican Party. But the Republicans were practical enough to know they weren't going to win without New York. And Garfield was supposed to do the, deliver New York, and he did. And so stepped in as vice president. Now, President Garfield uh, served until his assassination, at which point um, Chester A. Arthur became the president of the United States. What kind of president was Garfield for Arthur to follow? And why were there such low expectations for this man who was chosen essentially for geographic reasons? Right. Uh, The um, presidency that might have been under James Garfield is one of those unanswered questions in history. Uh, There are historians who argue that he would have been a good, solid, successful president. Others think he might not have been uh, that strong. I think that he would have been an honest president, a good one, not one of our great ones. Uh, He would have been a good one. But he was shot, uh, fatally wounded, died of infection, the wound would not necessarily, would not have been fatal today, but he uh, is dead in September, and so he's, been, he's barely president for six months. Now Arthur, Arthur is going to be in there for three and a half years, and he's going to turn out to rise above his machine roots. That's going to surprise people. As you well know, in American politics, More often than not, we get negatively surprised Mm -hmm. by somebody we think is going to be a great president, a reformer, somebody we really want in there. And it's rare for us to be pleasantly surprised by somebody of whom we expected virtually nothing, 
and he turns out to be good. So first of all, for Arthur, his machine buddies in New York were quickly disappointed in him because he was determined to be president of all the American people, not just to represent the interests of the New York machine. And the reform wing of the Republican Party, those who liked Garfield, really didn't trust him. And it's going to take a long time, and some of them never will fully trust him. So he's got some support in the Republican Party, but it's definitely a minority foundation that he has between those who regard him as having sold him out and those who just don't think he's for real as a reformer. What motivated him to make such a dramatic shift? Now, obviously, he was chosen to be the vice president because he was useful, uh, having connections with New York. But what motivated him to to shift uh, focus uh, to such a degree that he embittered, you know, people who might have otherwise supported him if they had continued with the same type of presidency that they had expected Garfield to have provided? Right. I can give you what I consider to be a relatively informed opinion, but it's not definitive. Uh, Arthur did not leave behind any written records of what happened, what's going on inside of him. And he doesn't have people to whom he talked who recorded anything about what's going on inside him. Uh, so we're, we're not sure positively, but I think that Arthur was deep down inside, still a man, an honest man. He had pushed that aside to help the machine in New York and to help himself, frankly, uh, make a lot of money uh, and rise up. He didn't, again, personally take bribes, but uh, he was making a lot of money through his position legitimately and uh, working for the party in terms of, as I mentioned before, forcing those who worked under him in the port of New York to pay dues, maybe you might put dues in quotation marks, to the Republican Party. Uh, I think he was a man who now saw the enormity of being president. I'm not just collector of the port of New York. I'm not just an instrument of the conquering machine. I'm president of all the people. And I think he really rose to be that. Had to have been a very sobering occasion, certainly with the circumstances that led him to that position, but then the weight of responsibility that he would carry for three and a half years. We're going to take a quick break, but we will take, uh, uh, we'll be back to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Dr. John uh, Pafford. He is the author of Chester A. Arthur, The Accidental President. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking this afternoon with Dr. John Pafford. He is the author of The Accidental President, Chester A. Arthur, served as our president upon the assassination of John Garfield. What What is it um, that uh, you think people should know about who John, uh, who President Arthur was and what he did? Okay, there, there are several factors that were very outstanding. Uh, I should mention one personal point about him, and that was a few months after he took office, he was diagnosed with Bright's disease, which at that time, it's a kidney ailment, and at that time, it was 100% fatal. So that had a somewhat debilitating effect on him, and towards the end of his career, of his presidency, really, uh, 
fairly seriously debilitating effect, but he rose above that. He did not want that known by the general public for two reasons. One, he didn't want pity. He didn't want to be known as a man who's ill, who's got a disease. He only lived about 18 months after he left the presidency, but he didn't want that known. He didn't want pity, and he also did not want to weaken his position as president by having, by having people decide that here's a man who's got a terminal disease. We really don't have to worry about him. Now, what he accomplished, I think the most significant thing that he did as positive about his administration was his undertaking the revival of the U.S. Navy. The American Navy, at the end of the American Civil War in 1865, was second only to the British Navy in terms of power. But, as all too often happens, after we Americans finish fighting a war, we lose interest in the armed forces, and we become weak, and then have to wake up, take a look at reality, that this is not a nice, sweet world with everyone nice to everyone else. And especially for the United States, it was necessary to revive the Navy, since we were becoming the most powerful economy in the world. We're close to achieving that position. And so Arthur undertook that revival. In 1880, when the Garfield Arthur Tingle was elected, the American Navy was ranked 12th in the world. And in some respects, it was even worse than that because a number of our ships were too archaic to be effective at sea. And a lot of the others were simply coast defense vessels that could not defend our interests beyond our immediate coastal waters. So we undertook that revival, and by the end of the next decade, the United States will do very well in the Spanish-American War. The American Navy will be in a powerful and effective force. So Garfield is the one who stopped that progressive decline from 1865 to 1880, he stopped that progressive decline and reversed it. He also undertook civil service reform. Uh, even then, as well as today, of course, each administration, when it comes in, wants to have the top officials representing its values and its party. But there still was a determination to get the middle-level and lower-level people in government staying in office throughout its through administrations. And so civil service reform started under Arthur with the passage of the Pendleton Act, which did provide that 10% of the federal government employees would be covered. So that's the second very significant thing he did. Was there anything surprising about his presidency as you uh, dug deeper into his legacy? The, that, that key thing that he wasn't, well I, mean, well, I should say, if I had been living at the time, I would have been surprised. Uh, I was very uh, impressed with the fact that he rose above being a machine politician. Uh, I, as I got into studying him further, though, uh, what I did find was that the revival of the Navy was more significant than I had figured, and the civil service reform more important than I had uh, known earlier. Uh, he was a sound money man. He was a gold standard advocate. And also I did find extremely impressive his vetoing 
a major uh, pork barrel bill uh, in 1882. That's a Rivers and Harbors Act. Between 1875 and 1882, we had tripled the amount of money we were spending on rivers and harbors. Some of that, of course, obviously was good, but a lot of that was pork barrel stuff, patronage stuff. And even at that time, when we had uh, more limited government, much lower taxation rates, we still did have some government, and we had taxation, and so there were people with their hands in the cookie jar. What were some so of the Rivers and Harbors Act? He vetoed. Mm-hmm. It passed over his veto, but he and he really impressed people immensely with the fact that he did take that strong stand in opposition to a lot of his machine politician buddies. Uh, let me ask you: What were some of his flaws? No president is perfect. And he certainly stepped up to the challenge of serving after the assassination of the president he served under. What were some of his weaknesses for this unexpected leader who surprised everyone at the time? Well, that's a good question. I don't really have anything significant of a moral nature that he was wrong in terms of principle on this issue or he did something that was dishonest or he really did something that was absolutely stupid. Now, again, he's going to be in for that three-and-a-half-year period. He's going to be fighting a lot of the machine politicians on the way. And so I really don't, I really don't have – you can – well, I want to stop for a moment. Uh, you can find some areas where he does make some concessions to political reality. Uh, it depends on who you are as to whether you would castigate him for that. So, for example, the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, we uh, passed legislation to limit for 20 years, in fact, to bar for 20 years any more Chinese coming into this country. Uh, initially, uh, the Chinese coming into this country were uh, hotel and restaurant owners. They were skilled artisans. But then after the Civil War, we were getting a lot of low-skilled, less educated people coming in to work on the railroads and on the farms. And that caused resentment by American workers because the Chinese would work for less than an American wanted. And so there was uh, legislation that passed Congress to prohibit any immigration of Chinese at all for a 20-year period. He did veto that, and uh, there was a sort of a compromise worked out that postponed it for 20 years, sorry, for 10 years, postponed it for 10 years. Uh, But there you can say he's acknowledging political reality. He's not going to take a stand in principle just for principle's sake alone when he's going to get annihilated for that. And so he did work out a compromise. What can we learn from Arthur's presidency today? I think the key thing would be that if you have made a hash of your life up until your middle years, then you still can change, you still can reform, you still can rise above that. And I think a key thing we should still look into politically is this idea of sound money, limited spending, um, and the fact that we do need strong armed forces to protect our citizens. 
Well, you know, that's not, he's not unique in that. Other presidents have done the same, but he's not that well known mm-hmm. for those stands. Well, Chester A. Arthur, the accidental president, is worth learning about. He is a part of our national history, and uh, it does inspire you to perhaps look at your own failures and, and shortcomings as uh, just roadblocks that are temporary, that there may be greatness yet ahead. Dr. Pafford, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Again, Chester A. Arthur, The Accidental President. The book is a Regnery History book. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be giving away our second pair of Trey McLaughlin tickets in the second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Seven minutes after five o'clock. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. In this hour, we're going to talk with Pastor Victor Alvarez. Conquest 2019 took place earlier this month. We're going to give you a wrap up and what's next. Pastor Alvarez will join us in our next segment. We'll also talk with Michelle Malkin, who is coming to the Portland area on Tuesday, October 1st. She is on a national book tour, and the book she is championing, Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? She'll join me to tell you a little bit about her appearance here in Portland. And then on Monday, we'll talk with her about the book that she's also going to be talking about. You can find out more about the tour at kpdq.com. Well, as promised, we want to give away our second pair of tickets to Trey McLaughlin and the Sounds of Zamar. Uh, that concert is coming up on Sunday, October 6th, 7.30 p.m. at the Newmark Theater. This is an outstanding musical group. They do gospel music, and they don't just sing it because it's a style they prefer. It's it's the heart of what they do. Um, you can hear some of their music. I think we're running a spot here that uh, features some of the music, but they're going to be here on Sunday, October 6th, 7.30 p.m. at the Newmark Theater. And we'd love to give a pair of tickets away uh, to hear Trey McLaughlin and The Sounds of Zamar. The name might seem a little p- unusual to you. But, boy, these folks can sing. Let me just put it that way. We want to give away our pair of tickets to the fourth caller and the number to call, 800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. Caller number four. So looking forward to uh, their coming to the Portland area. While the Senate on Thursday overwhelmingly approved a stopgap spending bill avoiding a government shutdown, they didn't actually resolve anything. They just postponed it, as has been the case for several years now. The continuing resolution, as they call it, which passed with a vote of 82 to 15, would maintain congressional spending authorization until the 21st of November and reauthorize programs that would otherwise have lapsed at the end of September. Congress will be able to use the extra time to try to work out appropriations bills for 2020. That's one of their primary jobs, but they're busy doing other things. The measure already passed in the House with a 301-123 vote. Three Democratic representatives opposed the bill. Seventy-six Republicans voted in favor. President Trump still has to sign the bill into law, but a White House official indicated on Monday of this week that he plans on doing just that, according to Roll Call. Before the vote, Senator Rand Paul proposed an amendment to the bill that would have reduced spending by 2 percent. That amendment failed after a vote 73 to 24. Paul has long railed rather against what he believes is unnecessary government spending. In July, he took to the Senate floor to criticize a budget deal that he called the death of the Tea Party movement in America. More importantly, the movement is less important than 
the bankrupting of a nation, but that's another subject. Well, the Trump administration signed an asylum agreement with the Honduran government on Wednesday, marking the latest in a string of asylum deals with Latin American countries aimed at controlling the immigrant crisis. The Department of Homeland Security announced it reached a deal with Honduran President Juan Hernandez, allowing the U.S. to send some asylum seekers from third countries back to his country. Migrants who cross Honduras uh, but did not first seek protected status there would be sent back in the uh, if they reach the United States southern border. Once the agreement enters into force, it will further enhance asylum and protection capacity in Honduras, the Department of Homeland Security said in a statement. Using best practices developed by the United States and the international community, the two countries will collaborate to increase protection options for vulnerable populations. The United States and Honduras will work together to ensure that these vulnerable populations are not victimized by smugglers, which is a real concern. The asylum agreement with Honduras, uh, which took place Wednesday at the U.N. General Assembly in New York City, was signed by Acting Homeland Security uh, Secretary Kevin McLeanan. The uh, DHS chief has already signed similar deals with El Salvador and Guatemala in order to stem the flow of migrants reaching the U.S. southern border. During a press conference in Washington, D.C. on Friday, McLeanan, he sat alongside El Salvador's Minister of Foreign Affairs to sign an asylum cooperation agreement allowing the Trump administration to turn away asylum seekers who reach the southern border and send them back to El Salvador for refuge. Uh, He signed a safe third country deal with Guatemala's outgoing administration in July, which is largely similar to the deals with Honduras and El Salvador. In return, the Trump administration pledged to bolster each country's asylum capacity. However, Guatemala has yet to implement its own deal, and it's not clear when El Salvador or Honduras plan to begin accepting asylum seekers Uh, either. Well, the Trump administration is reaping the benefits of an agreement it reached with Mexico in June after the president threatened to slap uh, all its imports with a 5% tariff. The Mexican government pledged to deploy 6,000 members of its newly formed National Guard troops across its own border. Their government is also cooperating on the recently implemented Remain in Mexico policy, also known as Migrant Protection Protocols, which keeps asylum seekers in Mexico as they wait for their claims to be adjudicated in the U.S. immigration court system. And the backlog is significant. Border apprehensions have fallen in the wake of the international deals. Customs and Border Protection announced that the month of August saw a huge decrease in the number of migrants reaching the U.S.-Mexico border, a 22 percent drop since July. The administration encountered just over 64,000 migrants in August, a decline from 82,000 encounters in July, and a uh, far drop from the over 144,255 encounters seen in May. Well, that is a significant drop in numbers. Well, those hoping for fireworks up in Turtle Bay for President Donald Trump were disappointed on Tuesday morning. No references to Rocket Man. Instead, the president's third address to the United Nations was shockingly traditional in tone and presentation. And although the speech, as is the president's tendency, touted the administration's economic accomplishments up front, it quickly shifted focus to the major foreign policy priorities of this administration. China, Iran, Venezuela, immigration and trade. In each of these five areas, the president expressed clearly the objectives of the United States and his steadfast commitment to achieving them. 
With regard to China, the president pulled no punches in accusing China of abusing and taking advantage of the international system. Not only has China, the president went on to say, declined to adopt promised reforms, it has embraced an economic model dependent on massive market barriers, heavy state subsidies, currency manipulation, product dumping, forced technology transfers, and the theft of intellectual property, and also trade secret on a grand scale, he said. He expressed hope for a trade deal with China, but reiterated that he will not accept a bad deal for the American people. On Iran, he, although the president appeared to open up uh, to negotiations with Iran a few weeks ago, he's taken a harder line in the wake of Iran's attack on oil fields in Saudi Arabia. Following on the heels of new sanctions imposed last week, the president asserted, and I'm quoting, all nations have a duty to act. No responsible government should subsidize Iran's bloodlust. As long as Iran's menacing behavior continues, sanctions will not be lifted. They will be tightened. Iran's leaders will have turned a proud nation into just another cautionary tale of what happens when a ruling class abandons its people and embarks on a crusade for personal power and riches. On Venezuela, the president spoke directly to the people of Venezuela, expressing America's support and commitment to help them one uh, them once democracy is restored. On immigration, the president was unapologetic in defending his position on countering illegal mi- immigration, noting that every nation has the absolute right and responsibility to protect its borders. On trade, the president reiterated his long-held belief that the system of international trade is exploited by countries that flout the rules to determine the countries such as the United States um, that do not. Our goal is simple. We want balanced trade that is both fair and reciprocal. It was an interesting speech, quite different from what uh, many anticipated would be the president's speech, his third at the United Nations. Up next, we are going to talk with Pastor Victor Alvarez. Conquest 2019 will give you the update and wrap up what's next. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and uh, we're glad to have you with us. Well, you might recall on September 7th, Conquest 2019 took place. It was the uh, biggest multicultural bilingual Christian event in the Pacific Northwest. It was an event that was uh, themed around glory to glory from 2 Corinthians 3.18. There are a number of different ways to measure the success of an event. Uh, And here to talk with us about Conquest 2019 and the events that will follow, the focus that will follow is Pastor Victor Alvarez. He is senior pastor of Father's House International, headquartered right here in Portland. He's also founder of Vision 5. A vision to reach thousands from different cultures fulfilling the Great Commission. And I am so honored to have you back to talk about Conquest 2019 and the events that are coming in the days ahead. Welcome. Thank you so much, Georgine, for this follow-up interview. It is truly an honor to be online here with you again. Well, let's talk about Conquest 2019. I know 2 Corinthians 3.18 figured prominently in this event, and we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Tell us about Conquest 2019 and the vision that will follow. Yes, well, thank you once again. Um, that uh, that portion of the Bible that you just mentioned, I love the way it says it in the new uh, in the King James version. It talks about how we go from glory to glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, over a year ago, the Lord gave us the vision for conquest, and He gave us a specific instructions as to what it was supposed to be, and uh, it was so clear as far as you know the theme going from glory to glory. One of the main objectives was that as a body, 
we would come together on the one roof and create an atmosphere where the glory of God would just be manifested. And through that glory, Georgine, we would be able to see racial barriers come down. Now, uh, as you stated in, uh, a few minutes ago, you know, just a few weeks, we were talking about, you know, uh, what it would look like. Now, you know, we, we've done it, we lived it, we experienced it. And the feedback that I am receiving from the pastors, from the leaders, people that were there, even last night, I was at the prior, prayer meeting, one of our local churches, and people are coming up to me just excited to see what God is doing uh, in our region, literally going from glory to glory, Georgine. Well, it's exciting to consider God's people coming together with no agenda other than to see his glory increase, to humble ourselves in his presence in prayer and worship, and to to take some time to think about the role that we are called to play in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that one of the elements of um, Conquest 2019 was to go and invite others uh, to come back for an evening of prayer and worship. Um, How did you see God move in reaching those in our community who don't yet know him or who are on the fringes? Yeah, well, uh, before I mention that, I I have to remind uh, the audience, uh, I have to remind them about the 120 Trump uh, ministry of our First Nation brothers. I don't know if you Mm. had on on your note there to ask me about that. But the reason why I want to bring that up is because yeah, it was an all-day event. It was an all—actually, you know what, Georgie, let me take it back one day. Friday morning, we had a pastors and leaders, what I called a VIP conference. There, was, there had to be maybe 70 to 80 pastors and leaders represented there. To me, that was conquest at its essence. If you can imagine— you know, the, you know, the different pastors, different backgrounds, different cultures under one roof and uh, to just be administered under the, under the glory of the Lord. At the end of this conference, we had a feet washing ceremony mm. and we broke bread. It was really something glorious to see the leaders come together, humbling ourselves before the Lord. And just, you know, asking the Lord. That set everything up for Saturday morning. Saturday morning, for one of the first things that we did was uh, have the participation of our First Nation brothers. They went up there. Uh, it, uh, if you want to look it up on, on Facebook, Conquest 2019, they're still recording there. I encourage people to go and hear the declaration that our First Nation brothers did to set everything up. That, that was the beginning of it. So that takes me to your question. In the afternoon, we got the 120 drums, and we marched outside of the big room and just, you know, uh, gave a public testimony of what was happening inside. And in the evening, oh, my goodness, talking about going from glory to glory, another key element to all of this was putting together voices that made up a that made up a heavenly, I can only describe it like that, a heavenly choir. You can imagine around 8.30 in the evening, the, 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 the stage began to get filled with uh, voices, you know, made up of blacks, of whites, of Hispanic, of Asians, of Russians. And the moment they began to worship the Lord, I was in the front seat. 
The only thing I was able to do, Georgine, was fall on my face under that weight of the presence of God that was manifested in that evening on Conquest 2019. Moving forward, this was a tremendous um, opportunity for the body of Christ to come together and to look like and sound like what the body of Christ is. What do you see moving forward uh, with this group of believers from different traditions, different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, and so on? How do you see this this group moving forward in ministering in our communities? I am so encouraged once again to receive the feedback. Uh, That same night, you know, some pastors, you know, they approached me and said, Victor, I don't know what you have planned for next year, but if you're going to do this again, count me in. I want to be a part of it. uh, yesterday, we had a final wrap, you know, uh, a final meeting with uh, the production company, and I appreciated so much what uh, uh, what Bill Dolan said. It. I don't know how many of you might know him, but yes. you know, he he's done many events locally as well as nationally, and I was so encouraged by what he said. He said, Victor, I've done many events, and I have to say that what I saw on September seventh. Is not an is not an event, but it's actually it's an actual movement. Mm. Something that the Lord has begun to do here in our region. So yes, to answer your question, our next step will be once again to gather all the pastors and leaders and a thank you luncheon. You know, just bring them in and thank them personally for hearing about the vision, believing the vision, and being part of it. So that would be the next step. And and after that, you know, we want to hear their feedback as to what the Lord is talking to, in, to their hearts to see, you know, to see what that looks like as far as uh, logistics. But, but we're definitely looking forward to 2020. And once again, we, you know, I thank, uh, I thank you for giving us this opportunity to go on in the air and not only talk about what Conquest would look like, but now that it's done, beginning to see you know, what comes next. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you will uh, definitely put us on the list to make sure that we can communicate with KPDQ listeners uh, what's happening next. And we're going to continue to pray that God would um, extend the movement that began with Conquest 2019 earlier this month throughout the year and in the coming year as well. I thank you so much for uh, being willing to uh, follow the vision that God gave you and bringing the, the church together, leaders and congregants, and uh, to be an expression of, of faith in our community in a way that um, I think is going to continue to have an impact. That is correct. Thank you so much, Georgie, for having me once again. Now, one uh, one final question. I know for listeners who may not want to wait clear until 2020, tell us a little bit about your church, where you are, if folks want to come visit. Oh, thank you so much for that opportunity. Yes, we are Father's House International. The main campus is in Selwood. You can look at uh, look us up on social media, Father's House International, Casa del Padre. We are a bilingual, multicultural church. Uh, and basically what we saw on September 7th, it's, uh, you know, it's a big expression of what we are as a local church. And once again, I want to publicly thank all of the pastors, the leaders, and, and, and not only that, but also the, the community leaders. As you remember, the, the mayor of Portland was there, and he added so much value to, you know, to the event. Uh, so, yes, please find us on social media, and if you come, it will be truly an honor to have you with us. 
Well, once again, Pastor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. Appreciate it. Victor Alvarez, pastor of uh, Father's House International, talking about Conquest 2019, which will be Conquest 2020. And we'll try to bring you those details as that that season approaches. Up next, we're going to talk with Michelle Malkin. She's uh, doing a tour all across the country that includes Portland. It's a book tour for her latest, Open Borders, Inc. We'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Conservative author and dynamo Michelle Malkin is on a national U.S. border and sanctuary city tour this fall. Sadly, that includes Portland. I'm glad she's coming here, but... Sadly, we're one of those cities. She's the author of the upcoming book, Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? Marching right into the belly of the beast to blow the whistle on the dark money groups and individuals that are funding America's illegal immigration crisis. Michelle is a wife, a mother, an American conservative blogger, syndicated columnist, political commentator, and a number one New York Times bestselling author. She started her career in 92 as a columnist and has been a powerhouse ever since. She became a number one New York Times bestseller bestseller uh, with her first book, which was pretty thrilling, Invasion. She also is the founder of conservative internet startups, Hot Air and Twitchy.com. Michelle Malkin, we are so delighted to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Georgine. Well, you have marched right into the belly of the beast, and I know one of your mantras is follow the money, find the truth. Tell us how this book and your tour is helping us to understand what's behind the immigration crisis we see on our southern border. Well, many Americans and certainly your listeners watched with alarm the rising number of these illegal alien caravans uh, that were marching right up to the southern border and getting through. And uh, it has uh, seemed to have increased under the Trump administration, although I've been reporting on these caravans for a number of years, uh, certainly dating back to the Bush administration. And one of the questions that a lot of people asked when I would appear on cable TV was, who is supporting these networks of people? The name that uh, became most prominent was a group called Pueblo Sin Fronteras. And I connected and collected all of the dots, tying them to the radical sanctuary movement in Chicago. A number of uh, left-wing progressive churches uh, inspired by Saul Alinsky, the original left-wing community organizer, had propped up a, a man named Iraheno Mujica. But it's really just the tip of the iceberg. And what Open Borders, Inc. does is follow the money uh, that has created all of these pull factors, these magnets, um, an entire shelter network that stretches from Central America through Mexico into the interior of the country, as well as the transnational groups and non-governmental organizations outside of our borders that have as an explicit agenda the sabotaging of American sovereignty. I know one of the purposes of your tour is to expose sanctuary cities um, uh, and those who are complicit with this move to essentially remove any restrictions on the border of the United States. Portland happens to be one of them. And for those of us who are living here, it's very frustrating. Do you link... Um, that kind of policy to what you've just described as being a, a sort of a network, not only in this country, but across the border as well? Absolutely. And of course, the most familiar name in Open Borders, Inc. is George Soros, the Hungarian billionaire and open borders philanthropist who has laid an entire groundwork, a 
constellation of non-governmental organizations in stretching from Europe uh, into Latin America, Mexico, and into the U.S. Uh, many of your listeners will be very familiar with some of the domestic agitators, uh, MoveOn.org, for example, and the Answer Coalition, anti-war groups under the Bush administration, and they have simply morphed uh, into groups that are trying to obliterate the distinction between legal and illegal immigrants. So the proliferation of sanctuary cities, counties, and states, jurisdictions like Portland and the entire Pacific Northwest, for that matter, are populated with activists at every level of government um, who are establishing these policies that prevent federal immigration officials from communicating with local and state authorities. And I have um, built up sources from across the country in law enforcement and immigration enforcement who are completely frustrated, uh, outraged by sanctuary jurisdictions that tie their hands behind their backs, gag them from communicating. And all of this, of, of course, has dire implications for public safety and national security. People in Oregon uh, certainly have seen, and in Portland especially, uh, the Abolish ICE forces escalate and incite violence against our immigration agents. And I have traced the money uh, behind the Abolish ICE movement to um, anarchist groups that have festered, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, since the 1990s when uh, I was covering them as an editorial writer and columnist for the Seattle Times. Now, we're hosting you for an evening um, at the Shiloh Inn here in Portland on Tuesday, October 1st, in which you're going to go into much greater detail. And my understanding is you're also going to share your deep dive dossier of the funders and foot soldiers of immigration anarchy here and across the globe. That's exactly right. And Chapter 5 of Open Borders, Inc., which I urge all of your listeners to read because it affects them in their daily lives living in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest deals with what I call the A-team, Abolish ICE, Antifa, and the Sanctuary Anarchists. It's one thing to have to deal with uh, these radical thugs whom President Trump has uh, considered designating a domestic terrorist organization. I don't know what he's waiting for, especially when you look at at the violence that has uh, been unleashed against independent journalists like my friend Andy Ngo uh, in Portland, escalating violence, uh, targeting ICE facilities across the country from Florida to San Antonio and, of course, to Tacoma, Washington, where I'll be on Saturday leading a Stand With ICE rally. Um, And what I do is talk about not only the ideological roots, but the financial subsidies of these organizations. Well, if you want to have a better understanding of what's going on, I know many of us are frustrated when we look to the South and then look in our own backyard. Uh, Michelle Malkin is going to be uh, here in Portland at Shiloh Inn's Portland Airport on Tuesday, October 1st, 7 o'clock p.m. You can find all the details at kpdq.com, but there's an opportunity for VIP early entry. You'll have an opportunity to receive a copy of the book that's part of your admission into the event. And we're encouraging you, if you are concerned, if you want to understand what's happening, and to have the opportunity to meet with and hear from Michelle Malkin, this is your opportunity to do that. Once again, the uh, website, kpdq.com, check it out there, all the details, you can sign up um, as well. Now, we're looking forward to this. This is part of a a nationwide event in which you are taking this message all across the country. Help put into perspective what's at stake if we fail to understand what's happening and to respond in a way that puts an end uh, to this effort to uh, restrict our uh, our liberty. 
I am the child of legal immigrants to this country, naturalized Americans, proud, unhyphenated Americans. And we have been taught by our parents, my brother and I, from the time that we were old enough to understand that citizenship and and our presence in this country was a privilege and not an entitlement. Uh, And that version of the American dream has been completely perverted and hijacked by open borders radicals who are intent on destroying our country. And this is not hyperbole. We have a choice. We are at a fork in the road. We have a president who gave an incredible speech at the United Nations that has been completely overshadowed by impeachment insanity. And uh, there is an intersection between the impeachment mob and the open borders mob. They have a shared agenda, and that is distraction and obstruction. Uh, And I think it's time for people to get off the sidelines. And before they, they can do that, they need to have knowledge. Knowledge is power. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. And once they have that knowledge, they have to make a choice about whether they're going to take action on it or hide from uh, these forces that are intimidating people, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. I practice what I preach. It would have been much easier for me to do a book tour ensconced uh, in my mountaintop in Colorado or simply, you know, to, to live in a, a bubble uh, in a TV studio. But I'm going out there because, you know, I try to be a good role model for my own children. And so I am very appreciative of the support of your station and hosting this event. And I can't wait to meet other fellow patriots in Portland. Well, we're looking forward to an evening with Michelle Malkin. You and I are going to have an opportunity on Monday to talk in greater depth about your book. So I want to encourage our listeners to join us for that. But once again, we're excited that you're coming and look forward to uh, hearing from you. Again, that's on Tuesday, October 1st, 7 o'clock p.m. and evening with Michelle Malkin at Shiloh Winds Portland Airport. Uh, KPDQ.com, register and join us. Thank you so much, Michelle, for taking the time to, uh, to talk today. Thanks, Georgine. Really appreciate it. All right. Um, I should mention that there's a VIP early entry. You have to be um, on site about 530. For $75, you'll have an opportunity to spend some uh, more intimate time with Michelle Malkin, have a photo op and so on. General admission is $30. That includes the cost of the book. The doors will open at 630 and additional books will be at a discounted rate of $19 uh, at the event only. Again, kpdq.com for all the important details. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to spending some time on uh, Friday, lightening up, taking a look at the lighter side of the news and certainly need to shift our attention away from some of the more serious, sobering matters that are going on. But we, of course, will cover breaking news and we'll return to those issues on Monday. So I hope you'll join us on Friday as we do uh, take a look at the lighter side of the news. Well, I mentioned yesterday that I was out of the office because uh, Dan Rice had a procedure Relating to his heart, the procedure went well, but there, um, there's concern about infection, and that's always the case for him, whether he has a hangnail or whether they've done a procedure. Infection is what um, brought him to the brink of having a heart transplant just a couple of years ago. Um, things went well, although I have to admit I'm really struggling with fear over what's going to happen next, to, to return to the same kind of challenge that we faced so many times before. And I'm so grateful for my wise friend and engineer who reminded me that, you know, tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Don't focus on what might happen. What's actually happening is what's important. We took an extra trip to the doctor today to make sure 
There were no complications as he's in a great deal of pain and other issues related to that. Then I looked at this story. I was um, uh, reading uh, earlier today about an Arkansas family, and I was reminded that, you know, if we have uh, the faith of a child, we will do well. And I learned about a family. They are from Arkansas. Uh, They were featured on um, Ainsley's Bible Study. It's a program on Fox Nation. It's not broadcast on the air. It's one of their extra programs. I'm not sure what you call it. But anyway, they uh, were on the program to talk about how they saw God after their son was crushed by an SUV earlier this year and miraculously survived. Well, the Everett family, they were heading to lunch after church on a Sunday back in January when a vehicle in the parking lot just appeared out of nowhere, that's how they described it, and crushed their small son, Titus, underneath. Now, as I read that, I could vividly picture what happened because I was on my way to work a couple of weeks ago, and I'm stopped at a stoplight and a rather large truck, it was like a dump truck with uh, double wheels on, on every side. Um, hit a, he was making a right turn and hit a bicyclist who I'm not sure if she was attempting to go straight or was also uh, trying to make a right turn. But what from my vantage point, I could see her underneath that truck um, from what I could tell being crushed by it. And it was devastating to see that I was sitting in my car. There's nothing I can do. Well, to make a long story short about that event, um, I Finally, when everything stopped, the truck couldn't tell that she was underneath until I think he could finally feel something was wrong with a bicycle because a person could not have been felt under his vehicle. And he finally stopped. I was able to pull over to the side of the road and I thought there's nothing I can do, but I can pray. So I got out of my car and prayed by the side of the road for this woman. I didn't know what condition she would be in. And thankfully, she survived with uh, relatively minor injuries. But having seen that and having a vivid image in my mind of what that looks like when the Everett family talked about uh, their son, Titus, and this is a small boy being crushed beneath this SUV. And this boy was literally run over and crushed beneath the car so that they could not get him out from underneath the car. Um, the mother, Sarah, says, I just lay down. I was holding his hand saying, God is with you. God is with you. We just keep singing. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. She says, I remember looking underneath and not knowing what I'd see. His mom, Sarah, recalled, I ran around and there he was. He was talking and he was rolled up in a ball like a fetal position and the vehicle was crushing him. As Titus lay trapped under the SUV, his father, Jason, said he tried to lift the 5,000 pound vehicle off of his son, but the car wouldn't budge. Uh, I just laid down on the ground, holding his hand, saying, God is with you, Titus. God is with you. And we just keep singing when I am afraid I will trust in you. An emotional Sarah recalled. Well, after a group of bystanders, they joined together to lift the vehicle off this small boy. Sarah, the mother and a waitress from the restaurant managed to pull him out from under this 5000 pounds of pressure. He was writhing in pain. Every parent's worst nightmare. Worried that he sustained internal injuries. A full medical team was arranged to operate on Titus immediately. But as they started to conduct tests on the child, they realized that the results were better than they expected. His back was severely burned. He was uh, has scars there, but they kept doing all these tests and everything was uh, starting to come back clear. Well, Sarah and, and the family were shocked. Jason, the father, explained that it wasn't until the next day that he truly understood the miracle that had taken place and credited his upbringing for instilling faith in him during difficult times. You know, we went to the hospital and maybe it was the next day and I really realized that we were calm during all of this. It was just because when you grow up knowing the truth and have the Holy Spirit constantly reminding you that he is in control, he said, 
He was in peace. Titus was heard reciting, God is with me because he's always on our side. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? The father went on to say, so that was the reminder. And we serve a good God. He allows situations like this to happen. But I think it's because it allows us to the opportunity to help others. Well, it perhaps the most emotional part of the episode, Titus revealed that what he was thinking while trapped under the vehicle, he revealed during an interview, he was asked, were you in pain? What were you thinking? And his response was, God was with me because he's always on our side. Well, this little kid reminded me of what I know as a grown-up, having walked with God for many, many years, that God can be trusted. And so I'm entrusting Dan Rice to him. If you think of it, say a prayer. Um, I sometimes think about how fragile he is in these circumstances, but God is with him and he is on Dan's side. So I will be at peace. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Certainly, there's a lot going on. I hope you are praying for um, truth, justice, and the American way, (laughs) if I can put it that way. Uh, But praying for wisdom and that um, things would, that the truth would be uh, made known, that there wouldn't be political advantage, but what needs to be done is done uh, correctly. I doubt uh, very seriously that that's the goal um, in some of these cases, but we'll pray that that will be the outcome in this one. So do keep that in mind. Also, uh, check out kpdq.com if you're interested in uh, Michelle Malkin coming to Portland on the 1st of October. That is a Tuesday. Uh, And as I mentioned, I'm going to be interviewing her, I believe, in the 4 o'clock hour. Is that right? Uh, at 4.30. Uh, I'll talk with Michelle Malkin about her new book that she is championing in this uh, this tour, Open Borders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction? So that's coming up on Monday. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program and Clark Hilton for engineering. Thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.